Section 8 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 8. Philip of France wins the French domains of the English kings, A.D. 1202-1204, by Kate Norgate, Part 1. When Richard the Lionhearted died in 1199, he left no son to follow him on the throne of England and to claim possession of the vast French fiefs of the Plantagenet family. These fiefs, which covered more than half of France and made their undisputed lord more powerful than the French king himself, became at once a source of strife. John, nicknamed Lackland, the youngest brother of Richard, succeeded him in England and in Normandy without dispute, but their little nephew Arthur was already Count of Brittany, and the other French possessions of the Plantagenets, Anjou, Maine, and Touraine, declared for Arthur in preference to John. At this time, France was ruled by Philip Augustus, who ranks among the shrewdest and ablest of all her monarchs. Dreading the vast power of the Plantagenets, he naturally sought to divide their domains by upholding Arthur. This unhappy lad, only twelve years old, was made a mere pawn in the savage game of his elders. His tragic fate is powerfully depicted by Shakespeare in his King John. After some fighting and several sharp political moves and counter-moves, John and Philip came to terms, May 18, 1200, by which the French king conferred almost all of the disputed fiefs on John. Constant bickering, however, continued. John had to do homage for his fiefs, and his French vassals took every opportunity to appeal from him to Philip as their overlord. Finally, when the moment seemed propitious, Philip demanded from his overgrown vassal certain Norman castles as a sort of guarantee of good behavior. This led up to the war in which the Plantagenets lost all their French domains and became lords only of England. It was arranged that John and Philip should hold a conference at Bodevant. John, it appears, kept, or at least was ready to keep, the appointment. But Philip either was, or pretended to be, afraid of venturing into Norman territory, and would not advance beyond Gouleton. Thither John came across the river to meet him. No agreement was arrived at. Finally, Philip cited John to appear in Paris fifteen days after Easter, 1202, at the court of his overlord, the King of France, to stand to its judgment, to answer to his lord for his misdoings, and undergo the sentence of his peers. The citation was addressed to John as Count of Anjou and Poitou and Duke of Aquitaine. The Norman duchy was not mentioned in it. This omission was clearly intentional. When John answered the citation by reminding Philip that he was Duke of Normandy, and as such, in virtue of ancient agreement between the kings and the dukes, not bound to go to any meeting with the king of France save on the borders of their respective territories, Philip retorted that he had summoned not the Duke of Normandy, but the Duke of Aquitaine, and that his rights over the latter were not to be annulled by the accidental union of the two dignities in one person. John then promised that he would appear before the court in Paris on the appointed day and give up to Philip two small castles, Thiliere and Boutevant, as security for his submitting to its decision. April 28th passed, and both these promises remained unfulfilled. One English writer asserts that thereupon 
the assembled court of the king of france adjudged the king of england to be deprived of all his land which he and his forefathers had hitherto held of the king of france but there is reason to think that this statement is erroneous and derived from a false report put forth by philip augustus for political purposes two or three years later it is certain that after the date of this alleged sentence negotiations still went on great and excellent mediators endeavored to arrange a pacification and philip himself according to his own account had another interview with john at which he used all his powers of persuasion to bring him to submission but in vain then the french king by the advice of his barons formally defied his rebellious vassal in a sudden burst of wrath he ordered the archbishop of canterbury evidently one of the mediators just referred to out of his territories and dashing after him with such forces as he had at hand began hostilities by a raid upon budevant which he captured and burned even after this if we may trust his own report he sent four knights to john to make a final attempt at reconciliation but john would not see them the war which followed was characteristic of both kings alike philip's attack took the form not of a regular invasion but of a series of raids upon eastern normandy whereby in the course of the next three months he made himself master of thillier lyon longchamp la fertaine bray bourgoy gournay mortimer amal and the town and county of eu john was throughout the same period flitting ceaselessly about within a short distance of all these places but philip never came up with him and he never but once came up with philip on july seventh twelve o two the french king laid siege to radipont some ten miles to the southeast of rouen john who was at bonport let him alone for a week and then suddenly appeared before the place whereupon philip immediately withdrew john however made no attempt at pursuit according to his wont he let matters take their course till he saw a favorable opportunity for retaliation at the end of the month the opportunity came at the conclusion of the treaty in may twelve hundred arthur after doing homage to his uncle for brittany had been by him restored to the guardianship of the french king the death of the boy's mother in september twelve o one left him more than ever exposed to philip's influence and it was no doubt as a measure of precaution in view of the approaching strife between the kings that john on march twenty seventh twelve o two summoned his beloved nephew arthur to come and do right to him at argenton at the octave of easter the summons probably met with no more obedience than did philip's summons to john and before the end of april philip had bound arthur securely to his side by promising him the hand of his infant daughter mary this promise was ratified by a formal betrothal at gournay after the capture of that place by the french at the same time philip made arthur a knight and gave him the investiture of all the angevin dominions except normandy toward the end of july philip dispatched arthur with a force of two hundred french knights to join the lusignans in an attack on poitou the barons of brittany and of berry had been summoned to meet him at tours but the only allies who did meet him there were three of the lusignans and saverick de Molion, with some three hundred knights overruling the caution of the boy duke who wished to wait for reinforcements from his own duchy the impetuous southerners urged an immediate attack upon mirabeau their object being to capture queen eleanor who was known to be there and whom they rightly regarded as the mainstay of john's power in aquitaine eleanor however 
became aware of their project in time to dispatch a letter to her son, begging him to come to her rescue. He was already moving southward when her courier met him on July 30th as he was approaching Le Mans. By marching day and night, he and his troops covered the whole distance between Le Mans and Maribau, 80 miles at the least, in 48 hours, and appeared on August 1st, 1202, before the besieged castle. The enemies had already taken the outer ward and thrown down all the gates save one, deeming their own valor a sufficient safeguard against John's expected attack. So great was their self-confidence that they even marched out to meet him. Like most of those who at one time or another fought against John, they underrated the latent capacities of their adversary. They were driven back into the castle, hotly pursued by his troops, who under the guidance of William de Roche forced their way in after the fugitives and were in a short time masters of the place. The whole of the French and Potavin forces were either slain or captured, and among the prisoners were the three Lusignans and Arthur. Philip was at that moment busy with the siege of Arc. On the receipt of these tidings, he left it and turned southward, but he failed, or perhaps did not attempt, to intercept John, who, bringing his prisoners with him, made his way leisurely back to Falaise. There he imprisoned Arthur in the castle, and dispatched his victorious troops against Arthur's duchy. They captured Dole and Fougere, and harried the country as far as Rennes. Philip, after ravaging Touraine, fired the city of Tours and took the citadel. Immediately afterward, he withdrew to his own territories, as by that time John was again at Chinon. As soon as Philip was gone, John, in his turn, entered Tours and wrested the citadel from the French garrison left there by his rival. But his success was won at the cost of another conflagration, which, an English chronicler declares, was never forgiven him by the citizens and the barons of Touraine. For the moment, however, he was in luck. In Aquitaine he seemed in a fair way to carry all before him without striking a blow. Angoulême had passed into his hands by the death of his father-in-law on June 17th. Guy of Limoges had risen in revolt again, but at the end of August or early in September he was captured. The Lusignans, from their prison at Caen, made overtures for peace, and by dint of protestations and promises succeeded ere long in regaining their liberty, of course on the usual conditions of surrendering their castles and giving hostages for their loyalty. It was almost equally a matter of course that as soon as they were free they began intriguing against John but the chronic intrigues of the South were in reality, as John himself seems to have discovered, a far less serious danger than the disaffection in his northern dominions. This last evil was undoubtedly, so far as Normandy was concerned, owing in great measure to John's own fault. He had entrusted the defense of the Norman duchy to his mercenaries under the command of a Provencal captain, whose real name is unknown, who seems to have adopted for himself the nickname of Lou Pescar, the fisherman, which the Normans apparently corrupted into Louvrecar, and who habitually treated his employer's peaceable subjects in a fashion in which other commanders would have shrunk from treating avowed enemies. Side by side with the discontent thus caused among the people, there was a rapid growth of treason among the Norman barons, treason fraught with far greater peril than the treason of the nobles of Aquitaine, because it was more persistent and more definite in its aim, because it was at once less visible and tangible and more deeply rooted, because it spread in silence and wrought in darkness, and because, while no southern rebel ever really fought for anything but his own hand, the northern traders were in close concert with Philip Augustus. 
John knew not whom to trust. He could, in fact, trust no one, and herein lay the explanation of his restless movements, his unaccountable wanderings, his habit of journeying through byways, his constant changes of plan. Moreover, besides the Aquitanian rebels, the Norman traitors, and the French enemy, there were the Breton partisans of Arthur to be reckoned with. These had now found a leader in William de Roche, who, when he saw that he could not prevail upon John to set Arthur at liberty, openly withdrew from the king's service and organized a league of the Breton nobles against him. These Bretons, reinforced by some barons from Anjou and Maine, succeeded on October 29, 1202, in gaining possession of Angers. It may have been to watch for an opportunity of dislodging them that John, who was then at Le Mans, went to spend a fortnight at Saumur and another at Chinon. Early in December, however, he fell back upon Normandy, and while the intruders were harrying his ancestral counties with fire and sword, he kept Christmas with his queen at Cannes, faring sumptuously every day and prolonging his morning slumbers till dinner time. It seems that shortly afterward the queen returned to Chinon, and that in the middle of January 1203, the enemies at Angers were discovered to be planning an attempt to capture her there. John hurried to Le Mans, only stopping at Alenchon to dine with Count Robert and endeavor to secure his suspected loyalty by confirming him in all his possessions. No sooner had they parted, however, than Robert rode off to the French court, did homage to Philip, and admitted a French garrison into Alenchon. While John, thus placed between two fires, was hesitating whether to go on or to go back, Peter de Pro succeeded in getting the queen out of Chinon and bringing her to her husband at Le Mans. Thence they managed to make their way back in safety to Falaise. This incident may have suggested to John that it was time to take some decisive step toward getting rid of Arthur's claims. According to one English chronicler, some of the king's counselors had already been urging this matter upon him for some time past. They pointed out that so long as Arthur lived, and was neither physically nor legally incapacitated for ruling, the Bretons would never be quiet, and no lasting peace with France would be possible. They therefore suggested to the king a horrible scheme for rendering Arthur incapable of being any longer a source of danger. The increasing boldness of the Bretons at last provoked John into consenting to this project, and he dispatched three of his servants to Falaise to put out the eyes of the captive. Two of these men chose to leave the king's service rather than obey him. The third went to Falaise as he was bidden, but found it impossible to fulfill his errand. Arthur's struggles were backed by the very soldiers who guarded him, and the fear of a mutiny drove their commander, Hubert de Burg, to prevent the execution of an order which he felt that the king would soon have cause to regret. He gave out, however, that the order had been fulfilled, and that Arthur had died in consequence. The effect of this announcement proved at once the wisdom of Hubert and the folly of those to whose counsel John had yielded. The fury of the Bretons became boundless. They vowed never to leave a moment's peace to the tyrant who had committed such a ghastly crime upon their duke, his own nephew, and Hubert soon found it necessary for John's own sake to confess his fraud and demonstrate to friends and foes alike that Arthur was still alive and uninjured. John himself now attempted to deal with Arthur in another way. Being at Falaise at the end of January 1203, he caused his nephew to be brought before him and addressed him with fair words, promising him great honors if he would forsake the king of France and cleave faithfully to his uncle and rightful lord. 
Arthur, however, rejected these overtures with scorn, vowing that there should be no peace unless the whole Angevin dominions, including England, were surrendered to him as Richard's lawful heir. John retorted by transferring his prisoner from Falaise to ruin and confining him more strictly than ever in the citadel. Thenceforth, Arthur disappears from history. What was his end, no one knows. The Chronicle of the Abbey of Margan in South Wales, a chronicle of which the only known manuscript ends with the year 1232, and of which the portion dealing with the early years of John's reign was not compiled in its present form till after 1221 at earliest, asserts that on Monday, Thursday, April 3rd, 1203, John, after dinner, being drunk and possessed by the devil, slew his nephew with his own hand and tied a great stone to the body, which he flung into the Seine, that a fisherman's net brought it up again, and that, being recognized, it was buried secretly, for fear of the tyrant, in the church of Notre-Dame-des-Prés, near Rouen. William the Breton, in his poem on Philip Augustus, completed about 1216, relates in detail, but without date, how John took Arthur out alone with him by night in a boat on the Seine, plunged a sword into his body, rode along for three miles with the corpse, and then threw it overboard. Neither of these writers gives any authority for his story. The earliest authority of precisely ascertained date to which we can trace the assertion that Arthur was murdered was a document put forth by a personage whose word, on any subject whatever, is as worthless as the word of John himself, King Philip Augustus of France. In 1216, about the time when his Breton historiographer's poem was completed, Philip affected to regard it as a notorious fact that John had, either in person or by another's hand, murdered his nephew. But Philip at the same time went on to assert that John had been summoned to trial before the Supreme Court of France, and by it condemned to forfeiture of all his dominions, on that same charge of murder, and this latter assertion is almost certainly false. Seven months after the date assigned by the Margan analyst to Arthur's death, in October 1203, Philip owned himself ignorant whether the Duke of Brittany were alive or not. Clearly, therefore, it was not as the avenger of Arthur's murder that Philip took the field at the end of April. On the other hand, Philip had never made the slightest attempt to obtain Arthur's release. Early in 1203, if not before, he was almost openly laying his plans in anticipation of Arthur's permanent effacement from politics. End of section 8